Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 5 through 11. Let us now focus on the word of God. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth in mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We ask that you would bless our studies, help us to understand what this passage of Scripture is saying, help us to see how it applies to our thinking and our living. And Lord, we ask that you would Prepare good ground in our hearts to receive these things tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Most of us would be happy to say that we want to see God's will be done. We pray the Lord's Prayer, and hopefully we pray it sincerely, and we mean it when we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we could probably also say that we don't always like the way in which God's will is done. We understand that His will needs to be done. We understand that that's the best thing. In fact, that's the perfect thing for God's will to be done. But does He always do it in the way that we think He should? Does He always go about accomplishing His plan in the way that we like or we prefer? Now, you know the answers to those questions as they are rhetorical We often don't like God's methods. We think he ought to do things differently. We think his way ought to be different to accomplish his perfect plan. And we also find the instruments that God uses to accomplish his good plan, we often find those instruments very surprising and or offensive. (laughs) Sometimes we think the people God uses are inappropriate for the God that he is and the plan that he is seeking to accomplish. Well, here we are in Habakkuk, and we've got a very similar situation. That that is the essence of what's going on here in chapter 1. Habakkuk is looking around him at society in Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's seeing wickedness and injustice and oppression, and these things aren't being dealt with. The law is powerless. And he's asking God, why have you allowed this? And why have you not rescued us from this situation? Now the answer comes in verses 5 through 11, but it won't be the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. Habakkuk won't exactly just stop and agree with God and say, Amen, God, that's exactly how I thought you would do it. That's exactly the way I wanted you to do it. Please proceed. No, he doesn't do that because God's ways, God's providence is often very surprising, very startling. 
and it is often contrary to what we would want to see or what we would like. So we are here in verses 5 through 11. Last week we began our study of this section by talking about God's astonishing work, his unbelievable work. He tells Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that it's going to be astonishing. It's going to be startling, and you're going to have difficulty believing it. Verse 5, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. So we spent some time thinking about God's astonishing providence, his astonishing ways, and here in Habakkuk we're talking about him raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to come and judge Judah. And we drew the parallel from there to the book of Acts in the New Testament and God's ultimate astonishing work, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection was startling and surprising and offensive to many people, and thus many people rejected it because it was something unbelievable. It was something astonishing to them. Well, that's what we covered last time. Tonight, we want to focus on God's instrument for this astonishing or unbelievable work. We've got a fairly lengthy description of the instrument that he's going to use to accomplish this unbelievable work. Of course, that's the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and that's in verses 6 through 10 tonight. So that's where we're going to focus. Verse 6, For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. Now, the first thing we need to do here is we need to think about a little bit of world history, people groups, geography, things like that. All right, you've got Israel down here to the south, and up here you've got Babylon. So you read in the Old Testament all these warnings from the prophets to the people of God about danger coming from what direction? From the north, right? It's because Babylon and or Assyria is up here in the north, and they come down to attack uh, Israel. So the Chaldeans are the nation that God is going to raise up. Who are the Chaldeans? Well, you can think about Babylon as a geographic region and people. Now, within that geographic region and people, you've got an area and a people known as Chaldea and or the Chaldeans. Okay, so they're like a group within the larger area and territory and people known as the Babylonians. So you'll see these terms, Babylonians, Babylon, Chaldea, Chaldeans, you'll see these terms used somewhat interchangeably in the Old Testament. And the reason for that is the Chaldeans were a group of people who at one time took over the leadership of the Babylonian Empire. So for example, example, Nebuchadnezzar is a Chaldean. He was a Chaldean king who rose to power and led Babylon. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is the king that leads the Babylonians, a.k.a. the Chaldeans, against Israel. 
and takes the southern kingdom into captivity, destroys the temple, etc. So I'll use those two terms, Babylon and the Chaldeans, somewhat interchangeably because the Bible does that. But that's who we're talking about here. We're talking about this group of people that is going to come from the north down to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah and bring destruction and God's judgment. What is God going to do with these Chaldeans? Look at the way he puts it in verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans are a pagan people. They are idol worshipers. They don't know the Lord God of Israel, at least not in the way the Jews should have known the Lord God of Israel. They um, worship idols, and maybe we'll talk about some of those idols as we go along in our studies in the book. But they don't know the Lord God of Israel, but that doesn't change the fact that the Lord God of Israel is in control of them. He is going to raise up the Chaldeans. He's going to give them their power, their strength, their military might that's going to enable them to take things over, so to speak, in Babylon and then come down and bring this judgment on his people. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is in charge of the nations. He sovereignly controls all peoples, all groups, all nations everywhere. And they do what they do by his secret and sovereign providence. John Calvin puts it this way, quote, The Jews were to expect the vengeance of God even from the Chaldeans, who would come not by their own instinct, but by the hidden impulse of God. End quote. Uh, Mr. Calvin is right there. Why are the Chaldeans coming? God's raising them up. The Lord God of Israel is raising them up for his own purposes. Now, as we'll talk about, the Chaldeans have their own intent. They have their own plans, their own desires. But over them, controlling them, is the Lord. And again, that tells you that God is sovereign. He controls all people and all nations. And I know we talk about that a lot around here. And the reason why we talk about it a lot is because the Bible talks about it a lot. Over and over again in different ways, from different angles, in different areas. And here we see it again when the Lord says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. He's the one doing it. The Lord is the one who is in charge. The Chaldeans may be interested in warfare and conquest and plunder and all of those things, but behind it all is the secret providence of an almighty God. He is in control. So how can we apply that to ourselves and our own lives today? If we really believe that, if we come to know that that's true, that ought to be a source of comfort, right? That God controls everybody and everything. He's in charge of the whole world. He's in charge of every nation and every people group on the planet, and therefore, we need not fear. We need not be afraid of pagan America, <laughs> right? We need not be afraid of pagan Europe or the Muslim Arab world or whatever the group is, whatever the nation is. They're all in God's hands. He controls them all. He raises them up as he sees fit. He gives them power and strength 
and he tears them down when he wants to. Now, you see he did this with this group, right? Here in verse 6, he's saying, I'm going to raise them up. And next, he's going to describe how powerful they are. But what happened to the Babylonian Empire? Does it still exist? <laughs> no, it doesn't. They were judged by God, and their power and strength was removed. Why? Because God's in charge. He's in control of them. He uses them for his own purposes, and that ought to be a comforting truth to me and to you, that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what nation rises and becomes strong and which ones fall and lose their power, we know who's in charge of the whole thing, right? We know that God is in charge of everything. We are not the victims of chance and circumstance. And it would be a terrible place to live to think that you're just a victim and you're just a pawn in a big game that's being played by dictators and political leaders and nations and their own selfish interests. But we know that the Lord God of Israel controls all peoples, and that's a comfort. Now, Habakkuk, unfortunately, <laughs> is not going to be comforted by that. He should be, but he's not. He's going to question God about what he's doing here. If you drop down there to verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk is going to question God and challenge God about using the Chaldeans. God, how could you use them? This is contrary to Habakkuk's expectation. And this is what we talked about in the beginning, that God's ways are often very different from what we expect or what we would like. It would be similar to us praying, God, our country has descended into darkness and evil. There's all things LGBT+, there's abortion, there's corruption, there's oppression, and we could list off these things and we say to God, God, please fix it. God, please come in and take care of this situation. Restore your people. Strengthen your people. Make America a wonderful place again, once again, or better than it was before even. And God says, I'm going to answer your prayer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up the North Koreans. I'm going to raise up the North Koreans, I'm going to give them great strength and power. I'm going to bring them in here, and they're going to destroy everything. What might we say to God? Oh, no, no, wait. That's not exactly what I was looking for. God, are you sure about that instrument? Are you sure about that tool you want to use to purge America, to judge America? You could see how many people would react to that. Doesn't sound very patriotic, does it? <clears throat> North Koreans. No, no, surely we're better than them. Surely they can't be brought in here to judge us. So hopefully that gives you a flavor, a little bit, for why Habakkuk reacts the way he does to this. 
God, you're going to bring this bloodthirsty, pagan, violent, warmongering people in here to answer the prayers of your people, to bring judgment? Yes, that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, God's ways of providence are often very different than what we expect and want, but God is all wise and his plan is perfect every time. And we have no right to question it, to challenge it in any way, shape, or form. It is our place to close our mouths and say, yes, Lord, and trust him for whatever he wants to do and however he wants to do it, with whatever method and means he wants to use to accomplish his good end, we must trust him. Now we come to a detailed description of these Chaldeans that the Lord is going to raise up. So let's look at what this group of people is like, and I think that'll help you see why Habakkuk is concerned about it and that it may raise some questions that we have to deal with. First of all, in verse 6, the Lord describes the Chaldeans as bitter. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans a bitter and hasty nation. Bitter there means fierce or even violent. This is a fierce people that the Lord is bringing against Judah. The next description is hasty, a bitter and hasty nation. We might say they are impetuous. They rush in like a flood with no concern for all the destruction that is in their wake. They are, number three, frightening, verse 7. They are terrible and dreadful. Those two words, when you put them together, you get the idea of a frightening, dreadful foe. So the Chaldean army, as it comes from the north to bring God's judgment, it's something that causes the people of Judah to cower in fear at the sight of this great army that is coming against them. Number four, the Chaldeans are autonomous. Verse 7, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. What does that mean? Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. The basic idea there is that they're a law unto themselves. They do what they want, and they answer to no one except for themselves. That's the basic idea. So you know in the news with Russia attacking Ukraine and that whole situation, and you've probably seen in the news discussion about war crimes, uh, things being done that should not be done in warfare. Well, the Chaldeans aren't concerned about war crimes. They're not answerable to the United Nations. Okay, I know they don't exist yet. They're not answerable to anybody. They're not going to listen to anybody. They're just going to come in and destroy and plunder and commit acts of violence and do terrible things. And they do that because that's what they want to do. And they answer to no one. Next, number five, and we'll include a number of different things here under this heading. They are warlike. They are a militaristic people. They are a a people committed to warfare. Uh, Verse 6, look at the end of verse 6, which marches through the breadth of the earth. Why are they marching through the breadth of the earth? They're doing it, end of the verse, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're interested in conquest. Conquest. 
They're coming through the known world in order to conquer and take over. That's what they're about. Verse 8, their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle or the vulture that hastens to eat. All of this animal imagery being used to show you a swift and a powerful army that's sweeping down from the north to conquer these various peoples and these various territories. Verse number 10. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. They come to wage war. They come to lay siege to cities and towns and nations. Number six, the Chaldeans are a violent people. This one's found there in verse nine. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. What do they come for? They come for violence. What's our Hebrew word for violence? Hamas. Hamas. Hamas is that word that was used at the beginning of this chapter to describe what was going on in Israel. Habakkuk looks around him and he sees Hamas. Violence. Well, the Chaldeans are a violent people. Why have they come? They've come for violence. They have come to bring their sword and their spears and their arrows to kill and plunder and destroy, to commit acts of violence. Now, we'll get back to this here in just a minute, but this is fitting, right? So if you go back to verse 2, this is the prophet's opening complaint to the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you? Violence, Hamas, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence, Hamas, are before me. What's it like in Judah? What's it like in Jerusalem? It's violent. Wrong things are being done. Oppression is being engaged in. The wicked are oppressing the righteous and doing violent things. Well, guess what God says to that? I see the violence in Judah. I'm going to raise up this violent people. And they're going to come in here and deal with it. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Number seven, and finally, they are successful in what they do. They don't just come and wage war, but they accomplish their objectives. Verse nine, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. So they come in, they wage war, and they take captives. And they take so many captives, they're like the grains of sand. You can't count them. There are too many. Verse 10, they scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. So they come to a nation or a group of people with its mighty king or its great prince. They don't care. They're not bothered. They're not intimidated. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of Pharaoh. They're not afraid of Syria. They're not afraid of the king and Judah are not afraid of anybody. They mock and laugh at kings and princes. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. So they come to a city that has a wall around it, right? That has fortifications. 
we might say. So not just a bunch of people living in tents and things like that, kind of nomadic sort of people. But they come to a city that's maybe walled and fortified and it's stronger. They don't care. They don't care about that. What they do is they come with their siege engines, their great military works. They'll throw up a mound. They'll throw up some dirt and they'll run their machines up so they can get into the city, so they can batter the walls and take them down. That's the idea behind all of this. They're successful in what they do in warfare. Now let's apply this, and let's think about what kinds of questions this raises, this description, and how we should think about it. First of all, the description of this people and the combination of that and what God says in verse 6 might trouble some people. Verse 6 says, for indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm doing it, God says. And then he goes on to describe them, and this is a nasty group of people. This is a violent, bloodthirsty, warmongering group of people. So someone might ask, wait a second, I thought God was love. I thought God was good. How could a good, righteous, loving God raise up a violent, bloodthirsty people to accomplish his purposes. The first thing I think we should say to that is there is a component of mystery there that we should simply bow down before and say, yes, Lord. The Lord says he's going to raise up the Chaldeans. God says that he can use a crooked stick. And we may not grasp entirely how he can do that and keep himself pure from all of it, but that's exactly what he does. He's God. You say, well, how can he do that? Because he's God. Could you do that? (laughs) No, you'd get your hands dirty with sin. But can God do it without getting his hands dirty with sin? Yes, absolutely he can. I could not find the author of this quote. I looked, and it was attributed to multiple people. I heard it from a professor in seminary. So if you can track down who originally said this, you get extra credit. Okay? But I think it's a wonderful, short way to think about this very thing, and it is this. God uses sin sinlessly. God uses sin sinlessly. He controls it. He directs it for his own good, holy, and righteous purposes. To think about it this way, think about the Chaldeans, okay? So you've got Chaldeans, they're going to come from up here, they're going to come down here, and what's on their mind? What is their intent and their purpose? Destruction, treasure, death, bloodshed, the... Uh, exhibition of their pride and their power as a warlike people. That's their purpose. What's God's purpose? What's God aiming at in this? I'll let you answer now. That one wasn't rhetorical. Yeah, or to judge his people, right? Yes. Um, Is God's purpose good? Yes. Yes. Is their purpose bad? 
Yes, their purpose is bad. They mean it for evil. Who means it for good? God means it for good. Now, hopefully that sounds familiar, right? That makes you think of Joseph and his brothers. What was on the brothers' mind when they were thinking about killing Joseph and or selling him into slavery? Evil. They hated him. They wanted to destroy him. And so they meant it for evil. But where was God in all of that? Directing the show. In sovereign control, the whole thing. He's got a plan, and his plan is to take Joseph from here to second in command in Egypt. And he uses sin sinlessly to get it done, to accomplish it. Uh, Thomas Watson, one of the great Puritans, puts it this way, quote, He can strike, speaking of God, he can strike a straight stroke by a crooked stick. End quote. God can do that. He can take a crooked stick, the Chaldeans, and he can strike a perfect blow of divine justice. There's something else at work here also. And it is, to come back to what we talked about a little while ago, verse 3 again, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. Okay, there's violence in Jerusalem, in Judah. How's God going to deal with it? He's going to bring violent people to take care of that. <laughs> That's his method. That's his instrument. The Chaldeans are a violent people, according to verse 9 here of chapter 1. What is that? This is the the lex talionis. That's Latin. Anybody know what that means? <laughs> Where are all my Latin scholars here this evening? <laughs> The lex talionis, it's Latin, it means law of retribution. You might know it as the punishment fits the crime. Or to put it in biblical terms, what a man sows, that he shall also reap. Okay, so the people of Judah are doing this. They are violently oppressing one another, and it's going unchecked. It's not being dealt with, so God's going to bring violence to deal with the violence. The punishment fits the crime. It matches perfectly the way it should. Now, we said a minute ago that people will question and challenge God and say, okay, how could God use uh, such a terrible people in the Chaldeans to accomplish his purpose? But really, we should be praising God for his perfect justice. Should we not? What does this deserve? That. That's what it deserves. God makes sure that the punishment, the judgment that comes on Judah, fits exactly their crime. What they are guilty of, God is going to bring on their own heads. That's how God runs the universe. That's how things work. That is his perfect justice. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. One more thing in closing tonight, and that is God raising up the Chaldeans to judge Judah 
his people is an instance of God's faithfulness. It is an example of God's faithfulness to his word of promise. Now, we typically think of promises in a positive way, right? The promise of eternal life, the promise of forgiveness of sins, promises like that. And those are wonderful things, and we ought to hold those dear to our hearts. But did you know that God also made what we might call negative promises, promises of judgment? Now, remember, way back in the beginning, at the very beginning, in Deuteronomy, God told his people through Moses, if you disobey me, if you walk in the ways of the nations, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring all the curses of the covenant upon you. Listen to one of those curses, Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. Ah, he's doing it here, is he not? He's bringing them down from the north. From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. Oh, that matches. Verse 8 here of Habakkuk 1, They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. As swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. Yes, the Babylonians are going to come in, the Chaldeans are going to come in, speaking a different language and wreaking all this havoc and destruction. What is that? It's the faithfulness of God. It's the faithfulness of God to His Word. He told His people way back here, this is how it's going to go if you do this. And now here we are in Habakkuk, and they've sinned and rebelled and rebelled, and God is true to His Word, and He brings this judgment against them. What should we do with that? We have to take God seriously, right? We have to take God's Word seriously, not just those promises that we like, but those promises that might send a shudder down our spine those promises of judgment. We have to take those seriously as well, and that should move us to repent of our sins and come back to God. It should move us to look at our lives and ensure that we are living in the way that God wants us to live, that we are walking in obedience to God. So here we've seen in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 thus far, that though God's ways of providence are surprising, they are just. They are perfectly just, and it is Him being true to His Word.